All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckabillies? What the fuckadelics? Uh, what the fuckminster fullers? All right, man. Women. I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. Uh, Larry Wilmore is on the show today from The Daily Show and also the uh, the designated heir to The Colbert Show. A year... Well, how long before... How, how does that feel to get a gig that you got to wait like a year to step into? I mean, the excitement of knowing it's like, all right, you're the guy. All right. The buzz goes down. All right. Uh, you just wait it out. I don't know if I think I would go crazy. I, I don't know if that's the best situation. It seems like the best way to do it is just hold on to the information until a few weeks before or a month before just to, to keep the juice going. And I don't know if that, if they can overthink it. I, Look, I, he's a he was a great guy. He's he's a smart guy. He's a funny guy. I was happy to talk to him, but uh, he he's a bigger man than me. Not shredding himself, knowing that that's going to happen. I mean, Conan. I mean, Conan. You had that Tonight Show gig. You were six years out. That didn't pan out well. Now, I'm not trying to be negative. I just don't know how I would handle that. Hey, we got a gig for you in about five years. I mean, holy shit, so much could happen. I could be a rabbi by then. Who the, I, I may be living in the mountains. I'm, I may have gnawed my arm off in my bed uh, just because I had a bad dream. I don't, know who, I don't know where that came from, man. I'm operating on full cortisol almost all the time. I did a little, uh, I, I was uh, researching uh, stress with this video. I'll talk about it another time about the difference between, you know, stress's effect on the body. <laughs> oh my God, sorry. No cough button here. Stress's effect on the body, like, you know, most of what we activate all the time was put in place for our survival to uh, to run away from lions and tigers and and uh, dinosaurs, depending if, you know, if you believe that, if you believe that perhaps uh, people were around with dinosaurs, that there was probably a lot of stress in those times, um, almost always. And a, a lot of the the sort of stress reaction amped up, ex- ex- accelerated heart rate, all the stuff that. That comes with uh, panic and anxiety and and getting jacked up, uh, anger, just all that fuel was really designed to uh, to get us the hell out of bad situations. And in the world we live in, there's not a lot of those situations necessarily in your day to day life. But man, isn't your head full of them? I got a head full of bad situations. I got a head full of panic and worry. Why? Because I can't fucking turn it off. I'm not taking care of myself in the right way. I'm doing the therapy thing. I'm trying to stay like a recovered person. But man, my cat gets sick and I'm I'm beside myself. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do without him if that happens. Look, my my heart and my, my uh, respect goes out to you. Those of you who can handle children... I, I really think I don't have children because I, I am not I am not designated to have children. I think I'd be a good father. There's no doubt about that. But I think I'd be a panicky, worried father that would drive everybody, well, my wife and my child, when it became conscious, fucking crazy. I would just be consumed with panic. I believe my parents were. I believe that what they really did, instead of love, uh, was um, extreme worry, extreme concern. Because I just had this weird realization about this. Not, not that any of this psychobabble matters to anybody, but maybe it does. You know, because Monkey got sick. I told you about that last week. And then, you know, when I got him back from the vet, I was waiting on a urinalysis results because everybody assumed, well, it's a urinary tract thing. It's uh, it's uh, those fucking crystals or whatever. 
So they got to put poor monkey under to take pee out of him because he's a nutbag and he's he's full of stress. I don't know if it, that if I'm causing that. I maybe I've made uh, my my cats not unlike me. Maybe my cats are prone to panic. Maybe they're you know maybe I'm sitting around panicking about them and they're sitting around going like oh god there he is oh he's gonna clank that thing not the guitar not the oh god here we go with the guitar who's that person in the house what's happening why is there a group of oh that's a publicist cats no publicist uh they come sometimes with the guests occasionally i don't let them in the garage so don't worry it's still just me one-on-one in here man no publicists allowed in the garage occasionally a friend will be in the garage uh occasionally i interviewed melissa Etheridge not too long ago and her uh, her wife was in the garage and that turned out to be very charming you'll you'll enjoy that uh, when it happens what was I talking about, though? All right, so we get the urinalysis back, and the doc is like, and this is, they put him on antibiotics again. He'd just been through a 10-day antibiotic, and they make him sick. So I get him back from the vet, and in the day, in the day after, you know, he's fucking sick. You know, he's throwing up. He's not eating. He's lethargic. He was just getting his spirit back when I brought him back in because he was licking his dick. He was just getting his moxie back. I think the antibiotics fuck him up. So then, like, you know, now I'm dealing with this sickly cat again. He's not licking his dick. He's not doing nothing. Just sitting on the couch. You know, he's not eating. It makes me scared. He's got undefined inflammation of the bladder. Like, I don't know what the doc's like. His bladder's really hard and, and it's 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 inflamed. It's probably a chronic condition. We don't know really what the source of that is. And he's like, bring him back in two weeks. We'll take a blood test. Like, do it all now. I'm not one of these people that's sort of like, I don't want to pay for the blood test if we figure it. Like, just do it all. Now I got to put that poor little fucker back in the cage if he survives two weeks. And I had to go out of town. So then I start thinking about it. You know, what is this about? You know, pets die. He's 10 years old. I thought he'd live longer. And I'm, I'm not saying he's going to die. I, I, I have a tremendous hope in his ability to survive. But, and, and that, you know, he's not really ill. He was fine before I brought him to the vet. But I'm just mad. I'm mad. And I started thinking about love. And I started thinking about loss. And I started thinking about, you know, why am I such a, a, a panicky fuck? You know, like, why is a full day for me? Like, I don't know what I did today. I don't, you know, but I know that I had no time to do anything. I know I did some laundry. I know I categorized some records. I know I prepared some food. I know I did some writing for a couple hours. I know I did an interview. Uh, I know that uh, that I, I responded to some emails. I know I swept the kitchen twice. I know I cleaned, emptied a cat box. I know I fed the cats. I know I, I put, washed some dishes and felt bad about washing dishes because there's a water shortage. And then I wondered, can I do a load of laundry? Do I have to put all the load of laundry in now? Should I wash everything at once? Is it on me to save LA from this drought? Kind of is a little bit, but what about the sprinklers? Do I want my grass to die or should it? Look, it was a full day. What I realized about myself is that there's a there's a there's a lot of activities going on in my brain, then there's actual activities going on in real life. Thank God I'm not just sitting on the couch with just you know mental activities because you know then I would be I've been that guy before. Then you're sort of like, man, I've been through a lot today, but I got I watched some television, but it didn't really stop what I was going through in my head, unfortunately. So. So I got the the mental agenda and I got the actual agenda and that's a lot of work. And in the mental agenda, I think a lot of it is 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 primarily to keep myself from reacting to you know what's really going on. 
you know what's really going on is I'm got to write a season, another season of my show. We got to break 13 episodes. We got to break 13 stories. Figure out what the themes are. We've started to sort of do that. We're really not on the books until uh, the 27th of this month. So I got all this stuff going on, and you know my my relationships haven't been working out, and you know I've become cynical about that. I'm afraid to open my heart. My trust is down. So I got my cats. I, I know I'm a 51-year-old man with two cats, and I know I'm a 51-year-old man that talks about his cats, and I know that in some ways that's very sweet that you know he, he likes his cats, but it's, it's a very, very fine line between sweet and like, oh, that's a little sad already. It, it, and I know that. You know? But I love these guys, so I love these cats, and the truth of the matter is, you know, cats don't last forever, people don't last forever, but there's, you know, there's a good chance you're going to outlive your pet unless it's a fucking tortoise. Or a parrot. Look, I'm not saying monkeys deathly ill. What I'm saying is that I just I, I wonder about the idea of 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 loss or change, you know, versus the idea of of love. You know, obviously I love these cats, but you take a lot of things for granted. Like I don't think I'm that much different than a cat in a lot of ways like pretty much a cat just needs the the objects to remain relatively where they remember them being that from what i understand you know a cat sort of gets to know something by you know the compartments of their life like okay that's always there that's always there that smells like that that smells like that all right i know where i am i'm home i don't know that i'm not i don't know that i'm that different like the idea of of like there's part of me that says look you know i can always get another cat i can always take care of cats and again I don't want to hex anything or jinx anything, but I'm just talking about about loss, you know? That I think a lot of my panic, like my brain seeking to get worried and overreact about things is primarily just to avoid this well of sadness and loss that I will not, I just don't want to deal with. That's why, you know, that's why I've had, you know, like a string of relationships that don't work out. That's why I'm overly obsessed with my cats. Uh, that's why I'm categorizing records. You know, that's why I'm moving shelves out for no reason. I'm building things. <sighs> because I, I just don't want to sit with myself. You know? But it's not, I don't think it's self-pity to sort of, you know, sit, you know, sit down in your midlife, whatever it is. I, I think that's being optimistic. But maybe a lot of this stuff is just weighing down on me. And, and realize what, not even being nostalgic, just sort of like, there's a lot of people in my life that I miss. There's a lot of relationships that didn't go well. And even if I chose to get out of them, that, you know, there's a sadness to it. There's, you know, there's relationships I have now that I, I wish were better, you, you know, and I can do all that stuff. And I feel my ability to do it. Like, I know I can show up for my cat, but then I get frustrated with him. Like, he's, he's obviously not feeling well. He's lethargic. He's not eating. And I go over there and I pet him and I rub his stomach. He's receptive. And I'm like, okay. And then I walk back in the house. He's still in the, on the couch. I'm like, come on. Come on. What's going on? And I, I wouldn't do that to a person that didn't feel well. Again, maybe another reason why perhaps children are not the best thing for me. If I got a kid who's in bed with the flu or something, come day three, I walk in. I'm like, all right, enough already. Enough already. And oddly, that's, I, that's what my mother did. So there we go. We're learning things. I guess the message of today's podcast is I think what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, is try to experience some grief for, uh, for, for my losses. 
emotionally. It's very specific. Again, I'm not complaining. I'm very grateful to be where I am today, but I have to process some of that stuff. And I think what I'm talking about with the cat is like, I love that cat, but the idea of not having him around is devastating to me. Uh, you know, I know that I'll eventually get over it, but like, you know, you, your heart gets heavy. And I know after, you know, we had, you know, Miss Pat on last week and all of you were just blown away by that tale of survival and by, the, you know, having a window into a life that many of us don't live. Thank God. But, but, uh, but understanding that there, there's hope and there, there's humor and there's, uh, there's transcendence, you know, that, uh, you know, that what, what I'm talking about is, is very, is very minimal. I know, I know that. I know, I know that's true. And I know that like, if I, I, and I do have gratitude, but I I tell you, man, when it comes down to like, you know, moving a piece of furniture out, I can let that go. Like maybe that's reminding me of somebody. I don't, but the idea of a cat or a person uh, in my life that just goes away or, or I push away, it's just, it's, it's horrible because it just sticks in your heart for a while. Like I, I'm still not over Boomer. I, I still hope that he comes back. And when monkey's sick, I, I I get very uh, scared that, that, that he won't be around and that I'll have a void as opposed to a solid, lovable little guy. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have, I haven't dealt with a lot of that in my life. And whatever. I'm, it's not self-pity. It's just a little sadness. It's okay. It's okay. All right? Because he's going to be okay and uh, I'll be okay and everything is good. Right? Exactly. You know, I I know I have a propensity to be stuck in it and I'm not going to do it because there's a lot of great things happening. I know a lot of you like the show and I'm very excited to be working. It's just my cat sick. That's all. It's my cat sick. But you'll enjoy Larry Moomore. Had a good chat with him. Let's do that now. Enough of me talking about my sick cat. Damn it. So I, I appreciate you have the time. Is that, I, is that Jeff Martyr? That's me, man. Uh, it looks like Martyr, doesn't well, it? Well, yeah, I mean, Martyr, yeah, it does look like Martyr, actually. Yeah. I had the Martyr that, hair. And, that yeah. look with the glasses. That is my first headshot. Wow. That is my first headshot. And I... Uh, Very Martyr-esque. Well, yeah, he's. A, I saw him not too long ago. He's yeah. all right. How'd Jeff's you, a, he's a good dude. I haven't seen him in years, but I remember he was so... God, I thought his stand-up was so funny. Was he was so funny. funny. He was a Baltimore guy. Yeah, he was a good right? guy. Right? I think so. Yeah, but I knew him when he was out here. Well, yeah. I didn't. I didn't even realize that uh, that you know that you were actively uh, stand up mm-hmm. for for a while, long time. That's how I started. Yeah, I I don't know how I missed you. How did I miss you? Why is that? It feels like we were starting. Well, we where were, did you start on the East Coast? Yeah, I basically started. Well, I was out here in L.A. in the late eighties. I was a doorman at the Comedy Store. Then I went back right. east to Boston, and then I ended up in New York, probably in uh, the uh, late eighties. Right. See, I started in stand up in the early eighties. And uh, just dabbled a little bit while I was in college. But by 84, I was doing it full time pretty much. But I was more of a, I did, I'm from here, so yeah. I never wanted to do improv or comedy store until I felt like I was ready. You know, so yeah. I, I kind of worked and act out on the road. Well, you know? I mean, so, okay, you grew up in Los Angeles? Yeah, exactly. Where? In Pomona. I don't even know Pomona. Is that a nice place? 
Yeah, it's all right. It was uh, like Orange Groves when I grew up. Oh, know? so it was, yeah. So it was, yeah, it's down the suburbs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like the Midwest, basically. And as soon as you go east of Los Angeles, people are like, what? Yeah. Oh, I know. Where is, yeah, it, it's either, where is it near Kansas? No, it's 30 minutes right. away. Yeah. Looks like Kansas. Yeah. You know, you go a little ways outside LA, you're like, where the, where yeah, the fuck well, am I? Well, my parents are from the Midwest. They're from Chicago. Oh, really? Yeah. And and, and uh, they moved out here right before I was born. Well, What brought him out here? My father wanted to live in Los Angeles because his, his, fa- his parents were divorced and his father moved to Pasadena. And so uh, he was here, your grandfather. He, yeah, he loved Pasadena. Uh-huh. And uh, even though he moved to Pomona, but... Uh, and uh, different people have lived in Pasadena at different times. I live in Pasadena now, actually. You're down the street. Um, yeah, I'm not too far. Yeah, <laughs> just right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. you are actually. Yeah, down I the think street. there's a Tommy's Burgers right in between yeah, us. Yeah. On Colorado. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. all you need to that's know. That's how I measure things, yeah. by where the Tommy's Which burgers side are. of the Tommy's Burgers <laughs> right. are the in and out it is. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I'm on the east side of the Tommy's and the west side of the in and out. So, yeah. so what kind of business was your dad in? Uh, when I was growing up, he was a probation officer. He worked uh, for L.A. County Sheriffs. And then when I was... Uh, Started in college, he went back to school and became a doctor. Actually, really, yeah. Well, just, that's a that's a big time investment. So he yeah, put another six huge. years in. Yeah, exactly. Went to got his uh, pre med stuff. In fact, we were going. I went to Mount Sac uh, Junior College, and uh, we have the same name. You yeah, know? and I was a theater student, you right? Know, which means <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it means everything that laugh entail, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so, but my father was serious. You know, he was going back to school. So he was on the dean's list. But uh-huh. you know, we had the same names. So yeah. I'm, I'm the third actually. So people would be like, "Hey, Larry, man, congrats! You make the dean's list." I'm just like, "Thanks, man." Yeah. So you're at the same school, <laughs> exactly? Because he got some of his pre med stuff, uh, some of his undergrad stuff. Because he was like got a sociology major when he was first in college. Uh-huh. So he had to go back and take all this pre med. Oh, for stuff. the probation officer stuff. So exactly. Was, yeah. Exactly. So he wanted to be in the therapeutic community one way or the other. Yeah, and he ended up uh, staying, working with the county, and ended up getting like two like pensions or something like that, something ridiculous. What and he of... ended up working at LA County Jail when OJ was there. How cool was that? As a doctor. Yeah, exactly. It, what, he was uh, like the uh, like I have in, to go check up on OJ. The internist and right in the yeah, exactly. in house intern. Is that exactly. what he was? A general practitioner. Yeah, internist? pretty much. Yeah. So he was doing the prison thing. Crazy. So, yeah. So he had a compulsion to uh, to work within you know helping prisoners. I wouldn't use the word helping. Uh huh. <laughs> well, I mean, he cared, well, but it seems like there's other avenues to go as a doctor. To... Yes, but I think it's because he stayed within the L.A. County system. Oh, not because he's like these right. guys need love too. No, 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 no. <laughs> he's that's not your dad. No, 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 no. He's no bedside manner at all. You know, <laughs> you got <laughs> no, you. It's the complete opposite. You're yeah. from a big family. Pretty much six kids, a um, couple of outside kids. Oh, really? You know, that uh, who, kind of situation. Who, who had those? Uh, my dad. Uh, but it was in the transition period, let's call it. So it was legit. Yeah. It was, it exactly. was off the board. Exactly, so. yeah. So you're, you're, right. It's one of those, hey, you can't be mad at that. Come yeah, on, man. We weren't together. Come on, yeah, you can't yeah. be mad at that. <laughs> but does everyone get along? Or Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, as far as family, families are So wait, so you were, your dad's uh, had two wives? No, he never got remarried. Oh. In fact, my parents got divorced. Um, early 70s and they had issues like about four years before that they never got divorced my mom almost kind of I call it she fake married a guy I shouldn't really talk about yeah. this you know? yeah. but it was very bizarre yeah. but uh, she you know she got close to marrying somebody but never did my father never did and now they spend more time with each other than they ever have really they, which they, just freaks all of us out yeah know? it's weird how that happens it's just not right yeah. but your dad had the other two kids after the divorce no 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 he had one. one he had one in that transition oh, period okay. yeah. <laughs> the, tra- the transition baby <laughs> yeah exactly so what did everyone are you the only one that ended up in show business no my brother Mark uh, is a writer for the Simpsons right now 
Yeah, and he did stand up as well, and uh, he he wrote for Jay Leno for a long time, wrote on the Tonight Show. Mark Wilmore. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know him either. Yeah, I so think yeah. I always think I know all the comics. We, we've been hiding know. in plain sight. How long has he been writing mm-hmm. for The Simpsons? Uh, about ten years now. Oh, so he's doing good. Yeah, he's, he's it's doing a good all right. racket. He's a very funny, writing funny a, young man. Yeah, writing's <laughs> a good racket, man. It is a good racket. It's a lot better than stand up. At some point, you knew that. It, I did. I figured that out. How did you figure that out? So you're well. Ha- I'll tell you what it was, Mark. Seriously, I mean, it's funny how like you say we never crossed paths, but what happens is that uh, like you get on the radar screen for different reasons, mm-hmm. you know. And I was the type of comic. I did political comedy. I did. Um, you know, offbeat humor, uh, observational stuff. But as I watched your tape, yeah, but I was right? yeah. comic strip live. Really, you saw one of those, but you saw I wasn't your typical urban comic. No, you, you were know? sort of dealing with the the sort of uh, highbrow approach to race. Exactly, you right. know, which is that became my name and trade now. Exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. at the time, unless you were the Def Jam sure. type of comic, you didn't. You, know? you fell through the cracks, right? Unless you were discussing how brothers are going to gorilla the pussy as opposed to white people just have sex, right? You know? right. <laughs> right. But you were more the guy. It's like let's deconstruct this gorilla exactly. the pussy idea. Why does it have to be gorillas? <laughs> why can't it be orangutan? <laughs> right. What, if the pussy's going to be uh, well, primated in some way, yeah. well, why do you think that is? Is that because then, like, there you you have an unidentifiable audience? I imagine the struggle. At well, that level of doing highbrow race humor uh, as a black comic, it becomes sort of like, well, who am I performing for? Well, wasn't that quantified in the beginning? Right. I just made people laugh in clothes. Right. You know, that's no, how sure. I viewed it. That was just my sense of humor. But actually, the notion, what it really is, is Hollywood's notion of what a black comic should be really was what it was about. And Hollywood Shuffle dealt with some of that, too. Yeah, with that, that was Townsend's movie. That was the exactly. first one. That was like the first real... First like, commentary on And that. the indie movie, though. That like, you know, right. this big deal was made in the promotion sure. of that movie that he did it by by burning through all his credit cards. That exactly. He bankrolled the whole movie. Exactly. Dom Irera was in it. Yeah, it was all about that. There was that big Jerry right. Curl, the Jerry Curl sequence. Exactly. Right. And you have to be Murphy-esque, those types of things. But here's what it was. When I was a kid, I mean, I grew up in the 60s, right? And and there wasn't any one notion of a black comic. There were many different types of black comics. You know, you had uh, Dick Gregory, who's a smart political comic. You still know, is. He'd be, yeah, he still is. He'd Will be, conspiracy-ridden, but... Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, once he <laughs> yeah. did that bohemian diet and all that crap, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, but, uh, But he was a political comic. You right. know, Bill Cosby was a storyteller. Right. You know, Flip Wilson was a vaudevillian type comic. He told jokes, you know, yep. old style jokes. Godfrey Cambridge would have been considered a, a hipster. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was on the college circuit, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Red Fox was more of your blue comic. He was a party records, they called him. Yeah, I got him. I got yeah. some of them. Yeah. Right? Those yeah. are, and those are great. He's you know? hilarious. But there was no one There's type. prior of- to. Yeah, Pryor was an extension of both the Cosby form. You saw him in that form, and then in the. Were yeah, you old enough to have seen him? Absolutely. He started in the Cosby form first, and, and then, then he morphed. He yeah, took went more, to Berkeley. Exactly. Started hanging out with the Panthers, and everything changed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, he got some awareness. Yeah. yeah. A lot of awareness. Yeah. I'm black. Yeah. <laughs> he brought the awareness to everybody. Exactly. You know. So that was the. Those were the. the it, there was, was no available? notion of right. one type of black comic. That's right. You know, you could fit in any type. Mm-hmm. And then sometime in the 80s, it became one type of thing. How'd that yeah. happen? Was that well, Def I, Jam? Or did, I mean, was Well, that... I think it started with Richard Pryor, to be honest with you. He was so wildly successful, and Hollywood capitalized on that, you know, and Eddie Murphy was kind of the... Next in line. Part of that id version sure. of Pryor without sure. all the nasty raunchiness. Right. I mean, all the messiness of growing up in a whorehouse and that kind of stuff. Here was a nice... 
you know, middle class kid, but had the same type of appeal, you know. Yeah, so yeah. So Murphy was the real glossy Hollywood version of Pryor. Right, right. You know? Without the menace, because exactly. that's true. It, he was not a threat. No, but Murphy it was, was interesting. Not a threat, but Pryor was right, and and he was the first threat in that way. He was a big threat, Mark. I mean, there are some tapes. I don't know if you've seen these, where Pryor is on the set of a movie and with he, Gene Wilder. Those tapes. I think. Were, I think it was. He's all jacked up. Exactly. He's on cocaine or yeah. something like that. I mean. If you're a movie maker, that's a fucking threat to your ability to finish that film. Right. Somebody who prior who doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah. Does not give a fuck about anybody because right. he gave that up years ago. He knows he's the number one attraction in the world at that time. Right. That is a problem. Well, that's a, but that's a threat on a on an executive level for exactly. a, a film executive. But I, I but I think culturally. And culture is like fuck you, white motherfuckers. That's right. And that language, and, right. and but white people were like, oh yeah, you oh, said fuck yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the difference. Right. He just said fuck us, and we exactly. love him. Exactly. And so that that became the model. Is Correct. that if if somehow and you had to be come from a poor background from the ghetto, that sort of thing. But it's you weird had that to speak, the, you had to speak in that language. Oh yeah, but I mean, even the people that took the 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 prior model, right. which defined what you're saying is the modern black comic, right? A lot of them don't cross over. Correct. And 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 right. Pryor was the guy that did crossover, right? So how did that? You know, how did that? Set, well, I mean, I'm I, well, I'm, all of a sudden I'm going to ask you questions about I, I know cultural I, I, questions. No, I get asked these a lot because but, been, I, but I understand yeah. that model, you know. Right. But it's weird that that it became isolated, that it became insulated, that that what you're talking about, the type right. of comedy you didn't do, Correct. was based on a model that really facilitated the first real crossover act, which was That's Richard, right. and then it, it insulated the rest. Kind of except for Eddie. Right. Well, right. he did a lot and of some others, a right. lot of things. Right. Yeah, yeah, a few others. Right. But uh so you did comedy for how long stand up? Um I did stand up for about full time about 10 years, 10 or 12 years maybe. And when did you and, realize that writing was an option? Well, the reason why I talked about all this was I realized that Hollywood wasn't going to find me, you know, that I had to create my own space, you know. And I realized that if I learned how to write and produce, I could just write something for myself. I mean, I really was inspired by what Townsend and Keenan later did. Mm -hmm. And um, I just decided like around 90, 91, that, I mean, I, it, it crystallized itself when I couldn't get an audition for In Living Color, you know. But um, I ended up writing on that show. You couldn't <laughs> get an audition? No, because I wasn't, I wasn't right for it. You, know, I wasn't, you, you weren't black enough? Whatever you want to call it, you know. But is that the, is that along the lines of like? It's possible. I mean, who knows, you know? But I wasn't the uh, the right type. Let's just say, yeah. you know. Okay. But um, I mean, I'm not gonna get in people's heads. But for me, I was like, okay, I just need to. I need to define who I am out there, right? Myself. I right. can't f try to fit into somebody else's box. I got and for good or for bad, whether it works or not, I just got to learn how to do that. So I got into writing and producing really to have the. No, to know how to do that. So, yeah. how did you get the job with uh, Keenan on on In Living Color? I just uh, just interviewed for it. But did you give him a package? And... Yeah, just at at that time, um, I had been working on a show called Into the Night with Rick Dees. <laughs> so that was but <laughs> that you was were, my first job. But were you acting as well? Yeah. Now I hadn't quite given up stand up or performing at that right. point because I was still making a transition. But once I had decided that I was going to do that. I found out a friend of mine was working on that Rick D show and I sent in some jokes and stuff and they happened to be looking for a writer and I got in. So it happened within a couple of weeks of when I decided to that do that. That was the first writing gig. That was my first but writing the, gig. But the yeah. acting, is that what you studied in college? You I studied, studied theater, theater in college, yeah. But did you go for, what, four years and mm -hmm. do the whole... Uh, I didn't finish. I was at Cal Poly after I did Mouse Act. 
And uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo? No, Cal Poly Pomona. Oh, okay. Agricultural Engineering School, which is why I was a theater Hell of a theater program, I yes. bet. It actually was pretty good. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker went there for a while. We, oh, really? We were friends back in the day. Yeah. Oh, you guys are around the same age? Oh, we were the exact same age. Yeah. Really? Yeah, we uh, we went to, the, um, at the time, we did this summer thing together. It's it's even hard to explain what it was, and that's how I first met him. And he was at Cal Poly, I was at Mount Sac, and then he transferred to SC, and I went to Cal Poly, but we were good friends back then, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting actor. Yeah. Uh, so you guys are, cool, yeah. so you, you want to be a serious actor? I did. I studied, uh, I actually was nominated for the Irene Ryan Acting Award when I was in college for doing Oedipus. I mean, so that was the level of serious, Heavy, and seriousness that I had. I studied playwriting, all that kind of stuff. So I had, I was was forming that type of background in the beginning. My first professional gig was I got it. I got my equity card. You know, that was like in eighty two. At the yeah, at the Mark Tate performance. Doing what? It was their improvisational theater project, and it was we wrote a play through improvisation. It wasn't the Groundlings type of improv. No, no, like yeah, yeah, like improvisation heavy in order, stuff. Yeah, right. to, to to write a, a play. And theater was. I had a very strong theater background. I, you know, I worked at it in high school and college. You know, so, was, so but to do, uh, uh, I thought uh, I would be a serious actor. Well, right, but the improvisational yeah. theater that isn't identified with comedy is right. It can be pretty heavy. Absolutely, it started with Stanislavski. Yeah, and, you know, Boleslavski and that whole movement and Adler and Meisner and you know that whole. So you were in. You were you were uh, a highbrow actor. You were well, gonna, you were gonna do uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I had that talent. You know, but, but I certainly had be, that interest. Right, you were right. going to do the real shit. Correct. Yeah. Right. So you, you know. come to L.A. But I was interested in comedy too. I was, and I was, I mean, in '79, I auditioned. I did my first audition at the, at the comedy store, you know. And I killed. You were still in college. I was still. I was my first year in college. I just got out of high school. In fact, a couple of years before that, I auditioned for the Gong Show. Actually, <laughs> really, the original didn't Gong Show. Didn't get on as a comic. No, didn't get on. Yeah. So was, that was so you had clearly comedy. I wanted to do that too. You had yeah. it in you exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that was like it sounds like that was the childhood dream. Definitely based on we, you know, which comics the guys you mentioned. Which was the first? Flip comic Wilson guy? was the first big one. Yeah, he was the first on the TV show. He had his own show, Mark. Yeah. I mean, this was a brother on TV yeah. who, who was the funniest person in the world, as far as I was concerned. Right, right, right. I couldn't believe how funny Flip Wilson was. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, Geraldine was the funniest character, and he had funny people on, and he was he was always funny, and I just couldn't believe how funny he was. Yeah. Yeah, that and get smart. I remember were the two funniest things, and it's funny because my sense of humor are both of those things. Yeah, kind of combined. That, that's the yin and the yang there. Yeah, exactly. You know that kind of smart <laughs> satirical yeah. take on the world, and then just just bold, yeah. just funny. Yeah, just yeah. over the top exactly. burlesque. Yeah, it's completely burlesque. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it was. That's yeah. hilarious. So, yeah. so did you think that as you got older, like you know that okay, well, you, so you tried comedy in, in high school. Well, yeah, I mean, and you nailed it. You did no, good. not really. I mean. You know, I was in, let me put it like this. I was, I've always been in many different compartments, uh-huh. you know, and I always didn't know if it was a schizophrenia issue or just not fitting in. Like I was a smart kid, so I was in the smart group, but I was also kind of a misfit, so I was in the theater group, you know, and I was also like, you know, I was really good in sports too, so I was a jock. You yeah. Know? But I mean, I was really good in sports. I was in a sports neighborhood. Like three people on our block played pro sports. <laughs> I mean, that's the level of competition. You, you know, must have been the weird. The jocks must have not known it what was, to do with you. It was huge, you know. But but here's the other thing: because you had people of that caliber, you knew very early on whether you had what it took. Sure, for like, sports. Like, I'm not six six. I'm not that size. I'm not going to play pro basketball. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there were no false illusions. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um. So and that was a good thing actually. So like in my first year in college, you know, I had to make a hard decision by not hard now, but 
I mean, I was really good in that time in basketball. I could have played probably at some colleges. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I had gone to school with Bill Duffy, who played, you know, he was an All-American in the same year as Magic Johnson. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I'm not at that level. But you see, know? It's hard. My brother was a tennis right. player. That moment where you realize that I, I, I just don't have the genetics or the physicality exactly. for it, the gifts. 90% genetics. Right. 90% genetics. Right. Yeah, I mean, you could be a good player and just say, like, well, I can enjoy this on my own time. Exactly. I don't have to destroy my life chasing this dream. Mark, biggest lesson of my <laughs> life, and one that when I talk to kids, I say, you don't have to uh, do for a living what your passion and dream is. That's right. You can just have a job and keep that as your hobby yeah. and why, keep enjoying it. Why ruin it? Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm actually a sleight of hand, I'm a sleight of hand magician. Oh, that you know? too, huh? But uh, but I do that in my spare time. Never wanted to be, it was my first real love mm-hmm. and passion, you know. Never wanted to do it for a living. Always wanted to keep it in a box and it's still there, you know. I still well, there's a big drop off between pro ball player and sleight <laughs> exactly, of hand. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, like, exactly. <laughs> that was the old joke. What's the, what's the difference between a pizza and a magician a pizza can feed a family <laughs> <laughs> but you still enjoy doing both oh absolutely yeah you know all right so you do the acting thing and you're, you're right. doing heavy shit you're doing oedipus and you're doing right. uh theater, all that stuff right and mm-hmm. uh when did when did you realize like that ain't gonna be the thing well there it was never that so much uh-huh i mean it was i i didn't compartmentalize that it was showbiz was one whole thing it was Showbiz or or not showbiz, as opposed to this part of showbiz or this part of showbiz. Right. When I made the decision, because I I dropped out of school to join the tapers thing full time and then and to do stand up, and I thought I'm just going to dedicate myself to it because I had tried it a few years early and I got kind of scared, you know. I mean that was the comedy store's heyday when I was going up and open mic night. I mean people like, you know, what year? This is a uh, eighty, you know. So. Right, so it was after the original heyday with Richard and everybody, and when, exactly. when the comedy business this is when was people like up. Letterman were going up regularly, like right. I'm seeing in right. the in the main room. Uh, Maybe Jim Carrey was there almost. Jim Carrey had, was just about to break right, up, but that that was in his early days, and people were like, "Who is this guy?" You right, know? right. People like Howie Mandel were, right. were huge in the comedy store that right. time. Um, those are the big people. Um, Jay was Jay was still big time. Jimmy Walker, big time. Well, Jimmy not so much because he was already right. a star. Yeah, 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 he yeah. was gone by that time. But uh, Jim J. Bullock, I remember, was yeah, one yeah, of the big yeah, guys. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, Alan Stevens was a big comedy I star guy. You remember him. Alan? Yeah. yeah, I interviewed him. He's still uh, Carol Leifer. She was on sure. East Coast, but I remember people like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was very intimidating. And was Richard coming in as Richard well? Richard would come in and work on yeah. stuff. Yeah, and so I remember seeing him there in the original it's room. Mind blowing, right? Isn't that fucking to amazing it, to see him in the original room? I remember room? standing in the back, just, just like what? And I would, I would sneak in because I was too young to be there, you know. Right, but you were a comic. You yeah, got exactly. Some, right, trying to do it, you know. So the door guy lets you in, and you know. yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. You're sneaking through the back. Somebody let you. First in. time I saw him there, I mean, yeah. I was there in '87, yeah, and he had already been on fire and everything yeah. else, and it was a little bit heartbreaking. Yeah. But to see him around '80 when he was still like, no, it was it was amazing, Mark. And to sit back in the original room because you know Paul Mooney would go up and do all the nigga 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 stuff you know yeah. and it was funny but it wasn't Richard and when, when Richard I, would go up even when he and to see him work on stuff that hadn't been you know it's not a bit yet laid back exactly and he's just, just working very on deliberate Ugh. yeah well, yeah, yeah, Mooney was always this, you know, this bombastic thing. Exactly. That, oh, oh, fuck you. No, no, yeah. no. Uh, oh, oh, because a nigga's on stage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. every yeah. comeback to the... He's already defensive that. and no one's exactly. done anything yet. Before he even starts his act, he's walking up and oh, th- this nigga's not going to get a laugh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, uh-uh. it, it's weird. I middled for him once in Sacramento. 
And uh, like I used to watch him when I was a doorman at the store right. for a while, and sure. just I never, I never quite got it because it didn't. Right. You know, right. I, under- I never quite understood the point. Right. You know, like I, I understood the sentiment and the anger, and I'm right. I, that that obviously exists, but yeah. I never understood what made Mooney so great. So I'm middling for Mooney, and I, you know, and I don't know how he's going to do, and right. I'm just doing my time, and you know, he, you know, he wanted me to. You, you know, you get into that thing with Mooney. You know, he had a guy traveling with him, and he had right. one of the kids with him, a younger right. kid. And yeah. he's like, you want to take the kid to the mall? And he's like, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, but like, here's the weird thing is that if the thing I found out about Mooney is that if you're a white person and you don't think you're racist, he'll find it in you. Absolutely. <laughs> is that the, and the approach is, you know, I would sit there and he'd be going on two hours. Right. You know, and, That's hilarious. He, and and like at some point, some white guy's gonna go. When's this guy? When's he gonna shut the fuck up? You know what I mean? Like right. he's gonna he's gonna test he's your patience. He's just waiting for it, right? right? Right. Test your patience. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of brilliant. Oh, he! I think Mooney is brilliant. No, he's definitely. He's brilliant. one of those geniuses that. That's why it's hard for people like that to be mainstream. Because part of their appeal is that they are so individual and unique. You know? But he also set a precedent for a lot of black comics, yeah, for a lot did. of comics in general. That right. you know there was a courage there right. and a, and, a, and a persistence right. that is a is is a unique and, a, and it's and, a courageous thing. And a lot of people adopted that, but without the wit. That's right. right. You know, and, and <laughs> right. he would always do that late spot. You know, always. Kennison would sit there and watch him. Everybody yep. would sit and watch him. Always. Yep. So all right. So you yep. so now you're going to be a comic. And well, another question I had though, like right. because you you do put yourself in the position to sort of address race almost constantly, right? What um, when you were in high school, when you're doing you mm-hmm. know moving through all those different things, you know, right. being a jock, being a theater guy, right. being a good student, was there? How did people assess you as a black person? Well, I went to basically an all white school. Right. Me and my friend were the only blacks in our senior class. I remember. It was oh, a, really? It was a Catholic school, and I always felt. Part of how I always felt kind of growing up, I felt like I was at a family reunion and I'm and I wasn't in the family, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's that so you always felt like an outsider in a way and and I don't know, at the time I didn't think about that too much. They were just things that I was interested in. But I would do things like I'd run for a student office and I'd always win because I'd have the funniest speech. Right. You know? Right. And people always called me Wilmore. No one ever called me Larry. I was always called by my last name. But I never really felt like a part of that group except with my buddy and you know, we used to make the, the jokes about all that stuff and everything because you know i've talked to to black guys who you know if they were there's that that idea or probably the reality mm-hmm. of of being judged by the black community as somebody who is playing the white man's game or, or no or, it wasn't so much that i mean kids would make fun of us because we were in catholic school we'd be right. walking oh you go to that catholic school yeah yeah you yeah. have uniforms right right and that kind of stuff but i didn't worry about that too much because um we were more the representatives at our school that was our identity more than somebody looking at us as a certain thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we were keeping it real. Right, That's right. what we were there to do. Right, you right. Know? You were representing black people at your school. Exactly. <laughs> we were representing black. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, motherfuckers, you, you, this is us right here. So that was our point of view. Yeah, yeah. And remember, I grew up in the 60s, black power, black identity, yeah. that sort of thing. And I and I lived through, I don't remember when, X, when, Mar- when Malcolm X was killed, but I remember Martin Luther King was killed. You do? It, How old are you? Um, I'm 52. I'll be 53 in October. I'm 50. I was, yeah, I was born in 61. But I remember that. I remember my mother just unconsolable, and so I remember those moments. And so I, I you know, so I had a strong identity of what that meant. Uh huh. You know, like mm-hmm. I tell people, I'm not a researcher. I'm a witness. You right. Know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, but um, so now you get into comedy, and you're going full time. So who right. are the guys around? You know that you're you're running with. 
in uh, 80, 81, 82? Uh, well, 81, 82, I was still in school. I didn't start stand-up full-time until about 84. Yeah. And so I started out at the Laugh Stop in Newport Beach. Mm-hmm. And so the people that would come through there were kind of like George Lopez was somebody I started with. We used mm-hmm. to do the open mic nights all the time. Um, people like, I don't remember if you remember Steve Odekirk. Yeah, sure. The, he did all those weird yeah. noises. And the <laughs> he plane, lived out there. And we used the to, plane thing. Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was a big comedy store guy for yeah. a while. Yeah, I used to see him when I was a doorman. Howard uh, Trespan, I think, used to book the Laugh Stops. Mm-hmm. And he gave me some of my first road gigs. But at the same time, I, I still was acting and that kind of stuff. I had like a small part in the Facts of Life. I got a recurring role. and, um, and That's a know, big deal. Yeah, it was huge at the time. But it, what's, what's hilarious is that as I was starting out in stand-up, that was my credit. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that credit would facts open so many. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You may have seen him on the Facts of Life. Yeah. Oh, the Facts yeah. of Life. Because yeah. whenever you travel somewhere, the fact that you were from L.A. was a credit in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, he's from Los Angeles. You'd be like, oh, from he's Los Angeles. Real yeah. show business. Well, yeah. So you do the 10 years there. Right. Now, how you grew up Catholic is, uh, that's oh, yeah. interesting to me. Unending source of material. Yeah. Yeah. But see, there were a lot of black Catholics, Washington, D.C. area, Chicago area, uh, there's a lot of different areas in the country where black Catholics kind of congregated. and uh-huh. So my family is one of those. From Chicago. Know. Yeah. It, so it goes dad, back. On my father's side. Oh, so yeah. A few yeah. generations Absolutely. of Catholic. Yeah. Interesting choice. Really someone, made, someone made the choice at some point. But it is funny, though. But now when I look at it, it's funny. I don't have that black Baptist Southern church tradition. Mm-hmm. It's not in my comedy. I'm not a preacher in my stand-up right. and that kind of thing. I've always been more laid back, dry in that because that's more that's Catholic. Catholic. It's interesting, yeah, right? You, you, exactly. You, you were denied the, yes. the screaming background. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For silent suffering. Right, right? Yeah. There's no uh, fainting or I, right. you know, uh, witnessing. There's exactly. No... So I've always had more in common with the Jewish sense of humor brand than with the traditional black preacher comedy brand. Sure, which was predominant. Yeah, like my heroes are Groucho, you know. Right, right. That right. kind of wit. That it made more sense. Wit. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that always appealed to me. You know, it still does, that type of thing. You know? Well, that's interesting because, like, you know, Pryor was all about, you know, screaming and, you know, and the preacher. Pryor and you know. was hilarious. And but Pryor... Cosby, not so much. Cosby was almost strictly family. You didn't get any sense of that. That type of... You know, it's uh, funny. Cosby was not one of my favorites growing up. Yeah. And, and that sounds heretical. Right. But, no, but, I mean... But my tastes were like, even though Cosby was funny, like what really made me... Like, I I was more intrigued by even Bob Newhart. Sure. You know, because there was something clever behind it. There was something more than just funny. He was taking an idea, that Abraham Lincoln idea... And it was that was a funny, clever take on that of the Gettysburg Address thing, where he's coaching him, you yeah, know, yeah. his press agent or whatever. You sure, know? that's like for, that's almost like a Lenny Bruce riff of the the Hitler thing. Exactly. And, yeah. Well, exactly. But, but, and I loved impressions too. I did impressions. So you're more kind of stuff more like you liked people that had something put together. Yeah, like exactly. Had, There's. So Cosby, I thought was funny, but I never sought him out as wow. Sure. That's what I I like. That, that's why I like Get Smart. It was satirical. It was making a comment. And it was about, about beats. You yeah. know, I mean, Cosby was about you know feeling and about movement. Right. You know, through but and obviously he has beats. Right. But but like stuff like that's written. You know, Mel Brooks with Get Smart. Right. That there there and Newhart as well. That right. you know, these were structured jokes. Exactly. Like Steve Martin, I could not get enough of Steve Martin when he came on the scene because there was thinking behind that persona, uh-huh. and uh-huh. you could see the thinking behind it. 
You know, it wasn't just my family. Exactly, it wasn't it. People thought it was an arrow through the head that that was a joke. No, 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 no. It was the fact that he put the arrow. Yeah, on his yeah, head. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, I remember he did something on the Tonight Show where he had like dogs where he was performing to the dogs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the, and it's can, like who would do something like this? And yeah. I, that kind of outrageousness. Like I love Monty Python. Yeah, the balls of absurdity. Yeah, Python were comedy gods to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, right? That type of thing more than like straight improv or that sort of thing. So here you are, you're writing, you've been given entree into the writer's room right. of, of what was uh, you know, a very important thing for television. Absolutely. That this was you know, the first black sketch show. It's huge. That it was like, it was phenomenal. Right. And you know, what was, what'd you learn there? What was the feeling there? That you know, Well, that- Olympic Color, man, that was a show, to me it was the show that really introduced hip hop to, to, to the television culture. Uh-huh. So it was more than a black thing. It introduced the hip-hop culture with the clothing and the mm-hmm. music, the language, the style of humor. Uh, that and Arsenio did it, you know, in in a huge way, which is... And it, it, before, no one had really... This culture hadn't really been on television. It had been in videos and that kind of stuff, but not on television, you know. It was and, one-dimensional. Yeah, and... Previous. Yeah, exactly. Right. If if anything, you know, or yeah. people just didn't really know what it was. What are they doing? I know. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that was a reaction. Like they're, I don't. Why don't they pull their pants up? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even uh, so, that was a. Uh, it was the. I always tell people it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times from a writer's point of view, only because it was so difficult. But you learned everything. In what way? Well, you're. Someone got fired every week on that show. Uh-huh. You know, it was Keenan was very demanding. Uh, the writers' room was very challenging, um, but it was the smartest people I'd ever been around who were funny too. You know, to see Damon and Jim Carrey at the top of their game. Damon's amazing. Damon was fucking amazing. I used to see him at the comedy store. I was like, "What's?" He? I used to say, "What are you gonna do tonight? You gonna do your set? You gonna do your act?" And he's like, "No, I think we're gonna do the jazz set today." That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he could do that then because they loved him so yeah, much. Yeah. The, well, he'd go out there too. I mean, with characters, and he'd just push it, man. Yeah, he was amazing. Yep. To be up close to it was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that was, was everybody involved in the writing? Uh, a little bit. Jim Carrey used to come to the offices. Uh, I used to write with Jamie Foxx sometimes. He would come around. Um, sometimes David Allen Greer, for the most part, not that much. Of course, Keenan ran the show, so he was involved all the time. How's he doing, Keenan? You in touch Keenan's with always been doing great. I yeah. see him now and then. And, um, I mean, Keenan is a mogul. You know? Yeah, well, I used to get be Keenan, very... Keenan figured it out. Yeah, it was very interesting yeah. to me because I saw him... Because I was at the store in 86, so you know, he'd already done Living Color, but he would right. still show up and do comedy very rarely, but occasionally. Yeah. And it always sort of fascinated me the different, because like, you know, he's more like you stand up. Right. And and Damon's his yeah, other thing. Absolutely. You know, it was like night and day, man. You you're, know? A, you're absolutely right. Keenan, my stand up was very close to what Keenan was doing back yeah. then, too. Yeah. So there were really, it's funny, Keenan had to create that show to create a space for himself. Right. You know, that space was and let not go there. And let go of the stand up. Exactly. He mm-hmm. had a different, his role as host, you know, of that show and bringing that was right. more important than him doing a, an hour stand-up special. Right. That was Damon's, yeah. you know, Damon could even sure. have that space, you know, but not Keenan. So you were on Living Color for the whole run? No, I was just there for a couple of years. Um, I came on in the third season and did a couple of seasons, and uh, then I started in uh, sitcoms after that. Just doing, uh, so you learned the ropes at Living right. Color. I learned everything about... <laughs> how to keep a job. I mean, you have to pitch so much. By the time I got to sitcoms, it was 
easy, you know, because you had to pitch every day at In Living Color, you know. For, oh, to bits. Yeah, and it was like, so you had to come up with, with unique ideas right. all the time. And on a sitcom, you have a group of characters and scenarios. You don't have to invent that every week. You're just inventing new scenarios. Right. In Living Color, you had to think of new characters all the time, new bits, new right. ideas based on pop culture, on the news, on this, on that. So your brain was maxed all the time trying to think of that. So, so. a sitcom is just refillable. In a way. E- easy. So what'd you go to from there? I did a show called Sister Sister was my first show. Who was in that? Uh Tia and Tamara Maori. Did that last uh, a while? The twins. It was on for a few years. Uh it was on ABC and then the WB. But they're they're big reality stars now. They've been around for a while. They have and you were uh, just staff writer? Uh started as a story editor, moved up the ranks pretty quick on that. Yeah. Um, and then what happens? Then uh I did a few shows when I was on Fresh Prince for a while. I did a show called The Show. And then uh, wait, I wa- the show with Sam Cedar? Yeah, Sam Cedar. That's yeah, right. yeah, that was before he became a pundit. Yeah, know? no, I work with Sam Cedar. Yeah, I was. Uh, we did a, a, a streaming video show. He's a yeah. friend of mine. Oh, I, Sam we were, was awesome. He we was great on, on that. He was we were on Air America. I thought it was a good idea. It was a very good idea. And he, here's a great story about that. So uh, John Bowman, who created it, he worked on Martin and on A Living Color. Yeah. You know, so he had this crazy character on the show, and he was trying to cast it. And he found this guy who was perfect for it. He was out of New York, and Fox did not like him. And But the Fox executive at the time, who I don't even know he's even in the business anymore, thought he was too ugly. He wasn't good-looking enough. So he, uh, so John's so frustrated because he knows this guy is perfect for it. So they made him keep looking for someone, and eventually the holding deal expired for this guy, you know, and he still hadn't found anyone. And so then uh, in frustration, he said, look, I have to let me just hire this guy you know I can't find anybody they said okay you can hire him so he went back to him and asked if he'd do the choice he says alright fine but I'll only do the pilot now I won't do the series because I guess right. I guess his feelings were hurt or whatever you know Yeah. and he says okay great and so he did the pilot and he killed he was the funniest thing on the show Yeah. funniest thing on the show Yeah. and then after the pilot he was like <laughs> sorry <laughs> about peace <laughs> and that guy was Paul Giamatti really Paul Giamatti. He was hilarious. And he didn't do the series. He stuck to his word. And Fox could have had him on the series. And the show was never the same without him. Never the what same. What was he was one of the writers on the show? Yeah, he played one of the he played one of the white writers. Right. He was hilarious. Oh ask my Sam. God. Ask Sam. I was Sam. He'll tell you how frustrating that was. We could not replace Sam's him. Sam's whole experience with T V was frustrating. He you know, the number the number yeah. of opportunities he had and, yeah. and either blew on purpose or not on purpose was fascinating. I thought he was good in that part though. No, he's very funny. He, he yeah. did a good job. Yeah, yeah. it was a, it, and I thought the premise was great. Yeah, it was. It's just, you know, sometimes it's timing with T V shows. Yeah. Sometimes it just comes on at the wrong time, just doesn't quite so, when, so, when, so out of that, I decided I wanted to be a, a showrunner. I wanted to do my own thing. I had worked on the Jamie Foxx show after that, I think. And um, I ended up uh, getting a deal with uh, Disney, an overall deal to develop uh, shows. I had done a pilot with a couple of guys from The Simpsons, but it didn't go. And uh, I was contacted by Imagine, someone at Imagine, about that Eddie Murphy wanted to do an animated show. Uh-huh. And uh, so I met with them, and it turned that turned into the uh, PJs. Yeah, that, was that that became, and that was the first show that I was able to. That create. was successful. Yeah, it did pretty well. Mm-hmm. It's actually it has like a cult status now, which is kind of cool. Did you yeah. work with Eddie directly? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you guys are okay? Oh yeah, we just talked a, a few days ago. He wants to do a movie. You know, yeah. Oh really? Yeah, Eddie was cool during that process, man. He was very cool. And here's the thing, Mark. Until you actually work with Eddie, you don't appreciate how funny he is. 
Well, I appreciate how yeah. funny he is, but you know, it, it's like he. I think because of the movies he's done, it's kind of. But also just yeah. because of like when someone reaches a certain level of celebrity, everyone yeah. makes assumptions and he becomes a I mysterious know. character. But yeah. you know, people who know him, it's like they just a guy, you know, with a lot of fucking money. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> he's, but he's still just a dude. No, he's hilarious. Yeah, no, he's, he's a- always hilarious. So you did that with him, and then what happened? Uh, after that, um, I created the Bernie Mac show. Now Bernie. That he was something else, man. Bernie was a huge talent. So, dude, yeah. I tell you, man, it's like back in '95. Yeah, Did you I ever think, work with Bernie? I'm here's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. I met him. I met him like um, they. I was at the Aspen Comedy Festival, right? And I don't think the show had been on yet. So they decided they're gonna have a black showcase up there, right? So there's <laughs> so it's Bernie. Wait, this is '95. Maybe yeah. Yeah, maybe, this is way before I was. Yeah, with him, right. right. So like so it was Cedric and Bernie and right. I can't remember the other guys right. and just they're the only five black dudes in Aspen ever. Right, exactly. They're walking around going like, "What the fuck are we doing? That's you hilarious. can't breathe up there." But right. and you know and Bernie, you know back then. I mean, was bringing a version of the black experience that was so u- uniquely right. Like it was so insolent. I ain't afraid of you, motherfucker. Yeah, like it <laughs> right. was like you know, this is the real deal. This yeah, is, no. it, it was almost like you're like, we're not even supposed to be seeing this. No, that's called keeping it a hundred. That's what that's called, Mark. right? <laughs> and it, it was mind blowing to me because right. like he was so huge, and, right. and and it always pisses me off that. There is a strange detachment between the comedy communities that right. they're like. I feel like for some reason, and I've been criticized on some level. It's like because I'm like I I don't have a lot of black acts on the show because right. I don't I don't see them around. Right. You know, and they're like, well, then a lot go. of it is in different worlds. That's right. Right. And it's 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 annoying, but they but I understand it. Right. You know, it's it's not like imposed. It's a decision. Your market's right. your market. Right. And there's guys who are like, well, I want to do both markets, and then right. and there are other guys who are like, fuck that. Right. I'm okay. Well, and you go to where your audience is. That's right. Right. To me, the whole thing about things being separated, I always had an issue with because, like I said, when I grew up, it wasn't like that. Like, yeah, you know, even the way TV kind of segregated itself yeah. to having, you know, what I call nigg at night, you yeah. know, when all the black shows have to be on one night, yeah. you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. You know, I'm like, why is that? You know, I mean, I mean, the Jeffersons. Someone somewhere is saying we know where they are all are right now. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> they're all watching tonight. Yes, yeah, so it's like the the back page of Jet magazine. It would tell you where all the black people were that week. It's like, <laughs> it's like if the police ever needed to know, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is where the black people are in showbiz, you know. What's all it, it all be? comes you know uh, indicating of something dubious right you know, but yeah but not as necessarily as as profoundly intentional as some people would suggest but definitely institutionalized right yeah right. so all right so working with bernie though that must have been mind-blowing you co-created that thing and that was a big show uh, i created it i didn't co-create it you were the guy yeah so I always have to make that distinction. No, I did create that show. Yeah. In fact, I won an Emmy for the pilot script. Then that's and amazing, it was, and it went yeah. it went the full ride, right? It went about five seasons. Fox fired me after the second season. After, Didn't matter. You created it. Yeah, exactly. I, I, we never got along with the um, with the head of Fox at the time, who was another guy who's now out of showbiz. <laughs> what happened with that? What was the issue? Uh, he was just out of his mind. He was just, you know, he was a real control freak and had a real horrible attitude. But uh, at the time, I had deconstructed. This the sitcom in order to write Bernie. I mean, remember, I have a theater background. You know, I studied, you know, Ibsen and Shakespeare and all that stuff. So I had a strong writing background and all that stuff. And uh, at the time, every sitcom was kind of the multi-camera. Right. You know, which is really based in farce and kind of based in burlesque almost, you know, and it's a filmed version of 
almost a burlesque show in some ways, you know. Vaudeville, anyway. Yeah, and vaudeville, all that kind of stuff, you know, which is great. It's a great forum, but it's um, it's based on on something different. And I wanted, I was taking a cue from the reality world when I created Bernie. I said, "There's something different going on here. The act breaks are different, and all that kind of yeah. stuff." So I had to construct it in a different way, and it was single camera. You yeah, know? the only other single camera in the show was Malcolm, Malcolm in the Middle at the time, and so based on that they would give me notes on this other thing and I was trying to write something different so we always had a conflict. Right. And they they called me incompetent and thought I didn't know what I was doing. Meanwhile, I kept winning awards. We won a Peabody, Humanitas, Emmy, you know, TV Critics Award and that made them more angry. <laughs> like, So they were trying to do the old paradigm which was three camera and give you notes on what they thought it should be? Well, they were giving me notes based on that. Yeah. And acting as if I was the dumb one. Right, you know? right. Whereas I had deconstructed all that and was doing something different. Yeah, and know? it started with the monologue and the, the, the yeah, voice. Yeah, talking to the yeah. camera. Yeah. And you know, and some of that's taken from old cues, even from the old uh, George Burns, Jack Benny, and as recently as Gary Shandling doing that kind of stuff. But in a different way, take, making a different experience. And now you're that. the guy running it, so you got to hire writers. Exactly. And you're, you know, you're, you're running the room. Right. What do you look for in a TV writer, man? What do I look for? Yeah. It really depends on the project, to be honest with you. Because because I've worked on so many different shows. Yeah. Like, at the moment, I'm doing a show for ABC, yeah. the sitcom, but then I'm also going to be doing my own um, late night show. So right. The, you're I'll filling be, in for, you're taking over for Colbert's spot. Right. What's so, that going to be called? Uh, the Minority Report with Larry Wilmore. You decided that. That's the, that's the name. Uh, that is the name. And right. who's producing that? John? John. John yeah. and myself. Uh-huh. And... Uh, uh, his busboy productions, but uh, but hiring writers for that is a complete different experience than hiring writers for half hour sitcom. Right. So in half hour, you're looking for depending on what type of show, also makes it more specific. See what their pedigree is. Yeah, and their storytelling ability. Right. You know how funny they are on the page, their ability with characters, all kinds of different issues. Whereas late night, it's more, it's a little narrower. Maybe yeah. It's just how. How funny are they? How insightful are they with taking a topic? Yeah, because it's a different you know, context. You're exactly. dealing with They don't with have to news. tell a story. Yeah, you're dealing right. with commentary. Exactly. And not story. Exactly. So, if it was The Tonight Show, it would be more, more monologue-based. Right, right. You know, or, I get it. Or bit-based. So it depends what kind of show you're running or what you look for in a writer. And you also right. did The Office. You worked on The Office mm-hmm. as well. Right. I was a producer on the show, a writer. And, now, and The Office and, is notoriously uh, kind of like known for being sort of a... You know, uh, is a repository the right word for for Harvard alum? Right. You know, but you know, there, there's this idea, right. and I know you've commented it, uh, about it publicly. I think a bit. Yeah, that, I think yeah. It's it, the way that I talked about it. Almost, it's a little unfair. What I I think what I was saying in that respect, I was making a different comment and use. I kind of use the Harvard alums as as an unfair punching bag. In no, the, it's in always a fair punching bag. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but go ahead. What was your well, question? Well, I mean, the, it, there's, there is really no easy way. To, I mean, it, it just seems to me that anybody who thinks that anybody got anything easy in show business, if they can't do the job, they won't They won't have right. the job. That's correct. Is that correct? That is correct. Like, there's this idea. It's like, with oh, with different, with, you know, unfortunately, some glaring uh, exceptions. Yeah. Right. Like? Uh, some people that are running networks, some people that- I'm not talking about networks. Let's, <laughs> just keep, it, let's keep it on the creative. Some, you know, some network people, executives are a whole other breed. Yeah, yeah, some people get into, you know, they get to fail forward sometimes and- Right, but- it, and but There are some it, examples of those in the writing world, yes. Oh, okay, Definitely. okay, all yeah. right. And uh, if I can yeah. tell by your face yes, that you know I, exactly who yes, you're exactly. talking about. I know a few people but, but, like that, right. <laughs> <laughs> are they Harvard people? No, they okay. are not Harvard people. Well, you no. got to figure the Harvard people know how to work. Yeah, you know you what? You can't sweep through Harvard, really. No, and 
I think a lot of your Harvard people really, I mean, they're smart. That's why they went to Harvard, you know. Sure. So, you know, you're starting with that. and Yeah, and it's all, you know, if that's what you, if you know what you want to do and that's how you're going to do yeah. it, I mean, it's the way it is. All right, so let's talk about this amazing opportunity. You've obviously done yes. you know, literally hundreds of panel pieces with John. Mm-hmm. You defined your tone. You know, this is like a, it seems to be, you know, that that experience on The Daily Show was a, a very specific reentry into performing. Correct. That, you know, utilizes stand up chops and commentary right. chops. Absolutely and, right. So yeah. when when the, the gig came, how did it like just for my own knowledge, mm-hmm. how did the desk pieces start? How did you get it with John? Well, you're right. It was my reentry. I was, you know, I had been show running and writing and that kind of stuff. And after getting fired from Fox, I realized now was the time to get back into performing. We well, had and, you had some passive income as well. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, with Bernie running, you're the creator. Well, sure. I mean, from a comfortable standpoint, right? You know, right. Um, but you know, certainly when you're at a crossroads, that's not the issue. Yeah, it's money's like, not the issue. Yeah, yeah it's like, like what do you really want to do with your life? I'm in my forties. You... Is it over? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's never over, but yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I had to say, look, am I going to do this or not? You know, am I going to... This was the whole reason why I was writing was so I could do something for myself. Mm -hmm. Now's the time to start doing that. Mm -hmm. So I had to come up with a plan of how I wanted to attack that. One of the plans was to write a show for myself and be in it. The other plan was to get back to my stand-up comedy roots Mm -hmm. and do like the talk show type of thing. Mm -hmm. But I knew I had been separated from an audience for so long, I had to get back in touch with an audience. Get your chops. Exactly. And find out even if I'm even still funny in in that way. Yeah. Because you never know. Sometimes the audience moves on and you don't line up. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like I always say, people, it's not that they stop being funny, it's that they line up with what the audience considers Yeah, to I be know, funny. but you're not like the right. guy who wore the hat. Yeah, right, they, exactly. you know, there was no <laughs> identifying thing like, oh, the guy with the hat's back. I think, I think that hat's right. out. I, yeah. Luckily, I never got famous enough to be dismissed that, by the audience. That's right. 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 I, I was always under the radar, you right, know, so right. that was that turned out to be a good thing for me, right. actually. So I was able to kind of splash on the scene with all this experience you know, in front of people, and they didn't even realize I was in front of them the whole time, you know, which is kind of cool. That is cool. But, uh... The, the guy behind the scenes. I know. The and, wizard. I mean, and I had done all these stand-up shows, sure. but nobody remembered that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I won a couple of star searches back in the day. Nobody remembered that crap, you right. know? So, you went through the whole star search process? Oh, yeah, and the original one, yeah, uh-huh. all that stuff, you know. I lost to Michael Collier. He was like that, <laughs> the homeless comic at the time. I he was remember him. All that sure, crap. man. Oh, that was so funny. And I was doing all this... Uh, it's just, you know, the intelligent stuff, and he was doing like, <laughs> exactly. "What are you all doing?" <laughs> exactly, moving around. <laughs> he was trying to pull a crowd in with a hat when he was doing a theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, you know, I'm doing jokes like, uh, you know, if I was a beer, you know, a lot of people ask me what I mix with. You yeah, know, I say, yeah. "Look, if I was a beer, I'd be an Negro light," and I'm a third less angry than the regular yeah, Negro. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Which is always a good joke, but sure. it's not that joke. It's not the other. Well, joke. you know who else reminded yeah, me of you yeah, that yeah. that I thought was a great comic, but but in the exact same vein was John Ridley. Oh, I love Ridley. He's a good friend. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. I'd love to talk to him. I try to get him yeah. on here because I remember his jokes. Yeah, I remember the joke about. He up- doesn't even remember his jokes. By the, the way, the uptown cigarette joke is right. like to me one of the perfect jokes about uh-huh. race. Where where remember uptown cigarette was the cigarette yeah. that came out was manufactured to appeal to black people. Right, and his joke was like, <laughs> I would have liked to have been at that business meeting at the cigarette company. Right. Where he goes, oh, well, Bill, I can't help but notice there's still a lot of black people around. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Ridley's very smart. He's yeah. one of those. He's one of those uh, true intellectuals. Yep. 
Yeah, well, he that, does some you know great you know, movie writing, and you know he's he's yeah, doing he's, American Crime show at ABC right now. Then I mean, yeah, he wrote I, and well, directed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just like, but you know, he was uh, in that area that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, the uh, the sort of not the you know not the the common right. not, know, not the typical act. what was yeah. being sold at the time. All right, so right. John, how you pitch John? What happens there? So I go and interview with the Daily Show. We thought it would be a good thing to do, possibly, and. Uh, my managers at the time had a client uh, who was a writer on the show, so that's how I got the meeting. And I think we pretty much talked about sports. I don't even remember talking about what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and John said, yeah, it sounds cool. Why don't we try it out? And they were changing over the show at the time. Colbert had left the year before. Cordry was just leaving. They just hired John Oliver, Rob Riggle, I think also Mombi was just starting. So a lot of people were moving out and people were coming in. And John wanted to you know, open up the show a little bit. And so my first bit on The Daily Show, I remember, uh, you know, when you're first writing it, you have Colbert and Carell in your head, and they did it the best. They're that fake newsman, yeah, so sure. you're, you don't know your voices yet. And yeah. I'm trying to write something, and wasn't sure what it was, and DJ Jabberbaum, Steve Bodo, two of the writers, came up with the idea of the senior black correspondent, which was a funny joke, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's all I really had, and I remember uh, the first bit uh, during the rehearsal, it really didn't go over well, because... You know, you, like it's all those problems with voice and everything. Not yeah. that the jokes weren't funny, right? Just not comfortable with the voice. And I remember, like, the crew and stuff—they're not wanting to look at you. You know, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, that they don't know how you're long going to be exactly. around. Exactly. It's like you don't yeah. name your farm animals because you might eat them. That's right. You that's know, it. some some of the, you know, you don't want to get too close to them, right? <laughs> right, right. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. So I remember being very nervous. I'm, Fuck, man, I'm gonna. This is gonna be my first and only shot at this. I'm gonna be gone like right after this. And we we were gonna do two. And after we rehearsed both of them, they both died. Uh, they said somebody came to me and said, "Larry, uh, John said we're just gonna do one, and uh, he wants to see you in a few minutes. We're just gonna go through some rewriting." And I thought he wanted to see me to tell me it's not gonna work out. You yeah. Know? But I went in, and John was very nice. And and the process is right before air. John goes through it with you line by line. Right. And he just had me kind of put it in my own voice, and we kind of talked it through so it wasn't so stilty, right. so stilted, you know? So he can interact like a natural way. Yeah, it yeah. became more natural. Right. The same jokes were there, but sure. it, we were, it was, became more of a conversation. Make it a conversation, yeah. yeah. And that helped me a lot, especially with my acting background, right? Acting in stand-up. Yeah. And then right before we went on the air, John did the best thing he could do, especially for a stand-up. Yeah. He, he just looked at me and said, Larry, look, just look in the camera and just fucking give it to America. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And my first joke killed, right? Yeah. And so now my stand-up comedy, yeah, I'm in. in, Yeah, and I'm like, all right, motherfuckers, you shouldn't have laughed now. So now I'm reeling them in. And now the crew's like, who's this motherfucker? You know, did they switch guys? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the best feeling in the world. Yeah. Um, And And uh, that's what that's what started it. It just all all connected on that first one, and we just took off from there. And yeah, the dynamic is great, and you know, John's a, a great straight man. He know? really is. Yeah, he's underrated as that. No, you know? yeah, well, he's uh, yeah, he's very good at it. He's I mean, unbelievable, at it. and like Johnny Carson, he lets you be funny. Yeah, you know, he yeah. allow he just lets that happen. Yeah, and he's happy to yeah to be you know it's around a, it. That's true. John does not get enough credit for that. And he it, really and, doesn't, and, and it, it is a big part of his job because people focus on the other part of it, which right. is good—the Walter Cronkite part. Sure. Yeah, I, he's the Johnny Carson and Walter Cronkite. That's right. Like no, that. it's it's a very yeah. true thing that you're. Saying that, yeah. you know, because so much of that job is him, you know, providing a space for Absolutely. others. Absolutely, look at the careers he's launched. That's from. right. Yeah. So let's just talk quickly about the new show. So it's going to be the Minority Report. Is it going to be somewhat structured, like uh, like your Showtime special, or how are you going to do it? Um, thanks for mentioning that, Billy. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, not quite. I think it'll, you know, we haven't worked out the specifics yet. Uh-huh. Um, I'll start working on it in October. But the main thing, I mean, there'll probably be a beginning where I'm weighing in on some of the issues of uh-huh. the day. Kind of in a daily show way, possibly. But I think the the main part of the show is going to be a real conversation with funny people, but not a scripted thing. A panel. Yeah. And I want to get people who are funny conversationalists more than setting somebody up so they can do their own. I'm available. I appreciate you. You never know. You haven't asked me. (laughs) But uh, so that's what what we want to do and and have real conversations about some of these issues in a funny way. Right. Like almost like the old politically incorrect or something like that. Exactly. All right. Now, before you run off, like what... Yeah, that's a good example, by the way. Okay. Uh, So, but... You know, in terms of like dealing with race, how how do you see yourself in differentiating from 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 Chris and finding yourself in the middle of that dialogue right. between the black community and the, and the white community? What mm-hmm. is is the the sort of you know oper- the manifesto that you kind of stand right? By? Well, my thing is I I'm a contrarian, so I I like to defy what you think I'm gonna do. So I'm not like I I never want to do the opposite of what you think. I'll always do the contrary. Right. right? Um. That's so, your type. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, and like I say, my personal opinion on things, I tell people I'm a passionate centrist, and I say what that really means is half the time I disagree with myself. <laughs> right. <okay. laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it really means. Sure. So I'm always on a search for the truth as opposed to I have an agenda that I'm trying to get across constantly. Right. Which is a different standpoint. Right. So that's why I may change my point of view on something based on the evidence. So that's almost like mm-hmm. a, what do you call it, Socratic uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's very Socratic. You know? And uh, so uh, so, so my black point of view will always be surprising because it's not based on one notion of it all the time. Right. So like one of the first bits I did on The Daily Show was I was kind of slamming Black History Month. Right. But that's I mean, like the, the most of the times the joke in Black History Month is why do we get February? Why is it the shortest month? Right. So it's always defending Black History sure. Month. And I sure. was attacking it. Right. You know, right. Which is a different point of view. And to make a different point. Right. And But yet I had a good point for why I was doing it. And John's like, well, Larry, what do you have against it? I'm like, John, 28 days of trivia to make up for 400 years of slavery? I'd rather we got casinos, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's like my take on that. You know, right. give me something I can really use. You giving right. me like Trivial Pursuit for 28 sure. days? I don't think so right, you know, give right. me, how come the indians got fucking casinos right you know? right where's our payback yeah exactly yeah. and so that's my point of view i'm gonna get to another truth in there that is not it's not the the general and, truth. and by yeah. being a tr- contrarian it, it supplies you with uh, you know an almost unending capability to sort of turn it exactly right because and i'm scooping out my truth on right it, right not what everybody else thinks so i may defy the position you think i'm going to take or i may be on the same side right i may be on the left i may be on the right but but it's still going to be contrarian it's still going to be contrarian exactly well good luck with the new show uh, i appreciate it mark and it's great talking to you man thanks you too okay that's it that's our show i hope you enjoyed that He's a good guy. He's a sharp guy. Wish him the best of luck with that new show. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Yeah. Yeah, do that. Get the app. Got a hell of a catalog going. Got a hell of a catalog going. Do what you got to do. Okay? Got an interesting episode on Thursday. Bob Rubin. Do a little research. Do a little research. Bob Rubin. Comedian. Okay.
Yeah, I'm gonna tune my guitar. For you. It's a little sad for a...